You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello, and thank you for joining the American Revolution. This week, episode 300, Surrender at Yorktown. Last week, we covered the tightening noose around the British Army at Yorktown, Virginia, in October of 1781. The army there under General Cornwallis was getting increasingly desperate and awaiting a relief force that General Clinton had promised to send from New York. I suppose promise is a strong term. Clinton promised to do what he could, but sending a relief fleet was still dependent on the arrival of the new British commander of naval forces in North America, Admiral Robert Digby. In early September, Admiral Thomas Graves, after combining his fleet with Admiral Samuel Hood, had sailed the British fleet to the Chesapeake to take on the French fleet under Admiral de Grasse. On September 13th, before Clinton received word of that naval battle, he held a council of war to consider what to do next. James Robertson, the royal governor of New York, and also a general, recommended loading up another relief fleet to bring men to New York. Clinton rejected that. There were not enough ships left to bring supplies. Adding more soldiers to Yorktown without supplies to feed them might make the situation worse. The council also discussed the idea of an offensive against Philadelphia in order to get the enemy forces to give up on Virginia and march north again to protect Pennsylvania. In the end, the council did nothing, but kept waiting for the arrival of Admiral Digby. The following day, Clinton received notice that the British fleet had been defeated at the Battle of the Capes and that the French controlled the waters around Yorktown. Clinton's response was that Cornwallis had assured him that the army had sufficient supplies to hold out until the end of October, giving them time to work on a plan to relieve them without rushing into anything immediately. He called another council of war to discuss the new information, the council interviewed several officers who had recently been with Cornwallis in Virginia. Those officers agreed that the army could hold out for at least three weeks against an army of 20,000 once the siege started. And at this point, the start of the siege was still several weeks away. So once again, the council voted to do nothing and wait for Admiral Digby's arrival. A few days later, on September 17th, Clinton received more detailed information from Admiral Graves detailing the naval defeat and confirming that the British could not get to Yorktown by sea and that the fleet was returning to New York for repairs. Clinton held a third council of war and decided that a relief fleet needed to arrive in Virginia by the end of October, which was still nearly six weeks away. Rushing back to Virginia without a force of sufficient size would only make things worse. Two hours later, the remainder of the British fleet under Graves limped into New York Harbor. It would probably take months to repair some of the ships 
and restore them to a condition where they could return to battle. Graves had first sailed for Virginia with 19 ships of the line, thinking that he was going to face a fleet of about 14 ships. Instead, he faced off against 28 ships of the line. A few days after Graves returned, Clinton received a note from Cornwallis informing him that French Admiral de Barras had joined Graves. So now the French had a total of 36 ships of the line in Virginia. There was no way the British could overpower that fleet anytime soon. Even if the British could repair the ships quickly and Admiral Digby arrived with his expected three additional ships of the line, that fleet would be nowhere near the size of the enemy fleet in Virginia. So, on September 23rd, the Council of War met again, resulting in General Clinton's letter to Cornwallis, tentatively hoping to send a relief fleet from New York on October 5th. Clinton, however, still had concerns. Given the size of the French Navy, it was not clear that the British relief fleet could even find a place to land a reinforcement army safely nearby, and that that army could link up with Cornwallis in Yorktown. Such an effort might only make the loss even greater. The following day, September 24th, Admiral Digby finally arrived in New York. Digby confirmed that he did not have any large number of ships arriving anytime soon. He had brought Prince William, the third son of King George III. William was serving as a midshipman and was the only member of the royal family ever to visit America up until this point. And while the prince did much for morale, he could not offer much hope of military relief for Yorktown. By this time, General Clinton seemed more preoccupied over being blamed for a loss than coming up with an effective way to extricate Cornwallis and his army. At yet another council of war, he suggested that Cornwallis might just try to escape. All the other officers at the council thought this was unrealistic. Clinton also brought up the idea of a diversionary attack against Philadelphia again, which the council once again rejected. Admiral Digby offered the ships that he had brought with him to supplement Admiral Graves' relief fleet, but Digby declined to take command of the fleet himself. After a couple more ships of the line arrived in New York from Jamaica on October 11th, the British fleet was up to 25. Even so, Digby clearly did not want to take command of what he saw was a losing fight. The British plan seemed like a long shot. The French Navy was keeping its distance from Yorktown. The British hoped to slip into Yorktown and offload an army, while the remainder of the Navy kept the French fleet away. As I said, this seemed pretty unlikely to work, and it relied on the enemy making several mistakes. But it was the best plan they had. In trying to pull off this action, it was quite possible that the British fleet might be captured or destroyed, leading to a far greater loss than the loss of just Cornwallis's army. The British repeatedly pushed back the launch of the relief fleet. Initially, Clinton hoped they could depart on October 5th, then it got pushed back to the 8th, then the 12th, and then again to October 17th. On that date, the relief fleet finally sailed out of the harbor, but then had to wait until the 19th for favorable winds to sail south. Clinton still relied on Cornwallis's assessment that his army could hold out until the end of October. That assessment proved overly optimistic. As we covered last week, the Allied forces captured the final British redoubts on October 14th and were bearing down on the main British army inside Yorktown. 
We left Cornwallis last week on October 16th, trying desperately and without success to spike some of the growing number of enemy cannons arrayed against him. Cornwallis continued to receive notices promising help from New York, but they were frustratingly vague on when or how much help would arrive. That night, Cornwallis determined that his army just needed to make its own escape. Cornwallis probably would have had a much better chance of succeeding several weeks earlier, but doing so would have meant abandoning his loyalist allies and possibly getting caught by the enemy on the march. Given Clinton's promises of reinforcements, Cornwallis had opted to sit tight. But now, with the enemy on the verge of overrunning his lines and no British fleet in sight, Cornwallis was out of options. The French fleet still kept its distance, giving the British the ability to cross the York River, where they still held an outpost at Gloucester Point. Overnight, Cornwallis would leave a small portion of his army to keep up fire against the enemy, while the bulk of his army crossed the river in small boats to Gloucester. They would have to abandon most of their cannons and supplies in the crossing. Once in Gloucester, they could defeat the small French army of about 800 and fight their way north through Virginia, Maryland, Pennsylvania, and New Jersey to make it back to New York. Now you might think this sounds like a pretty crazy maneuver with no hope of success, and you'd be right. The odds of marching his army over 400 miles through enemy territory with almost no support verged on the impossible, but Cornwallis saw that as his best hope at this point. The British had 16 large rowboats to cross the York River. It was a dark and cloudy night, which helped shield the British actions from the enemy. Around 10 p.m., the first ships began ferrying soldiers from Yorktown to Gloucester Point. As the night wore on, those storm clouds turned into an actual storm. Thunder and lightning accompanied a downpour of rain. Winds blew the waters into waves. Several of the ships capsized, drowning many of the occupants. The rain also increased the river currents so that several ships were forced downstream into the bay. By two in the morning, Cornwallis called off the effort, with most of his army still in Yorktown. The storm subsided in the morning after sunrise, but by then it was too late to do anything. Cornwallis called his own council of war. The officers agreed that their fortifications were collapsing. Enemy fire and disease had decimated their ranks, and those who could fight were too exhausted to fight well. At 10 o'clock in the morning of October 17th, a British officer marched out of the British lines waving a white handkerchief. A drummer boy accompanying him, beating out a call for parley. The Allied guns ceased fire, and the officer informed the Allies that Cornwallis wanted to discuss surrender. General Washington feared that Cornwallis might draw out negotiations in the hopes that a British relief fleet might still arrive. So Washington demanded that Cornwallis offer terms within two hours. When the British failed to appear within two hours, the Allied cannons resumed fire. Almost immediately, Cornwallis's second-in-command, General Charles O'Hara, appeared on the British lines holding their terms. Washington reviewed the terms. Although he found some points that he would dispute, the terms did seem like part of a good-faith effort to surrender so Washington agreed to maintain the ceasefire until the following morning. The following morning, October 18th, four officers, one American, one French, and two British, met at a nearby house 
owned by a merchant named Augustine Moore, to work out the details of the surrender. The team completed 14 articles of capitulation. The British prisoners would be marched to Winchester, Virginia and Frederick, Maryland, and there would be one British officer for every 50 soldiers. The other officers would be released on parole and permitted to return to New York or Britain on the condition that they no longer fight until exchanged. The French Navy would carry the officers to New York under a flag of truce. Sick and wounded prisoners would be provided with care in hospitals. The British agreed to turn over their artillery, arms, supplies, and public stores without destroying them. This included British ships and boats that were still in the waters around Yorktown. At 2 p.m. the following day, the British Army would march out of their lines with shouldered arms and colors cased. Normally, an honored foe would be permitted to fly their colors as they marched out, but the British were denied this honor because the Continentals who surrendered at Charleston were also denied that honor. So now the Continentals were denied to the British. Officers were permitted to retain their sidearms. All officers and soldiers could retain private property. Property that had been looted from the Americans would be returned. Loyalists captured with the British Army would not be punished by the Army. But the Americans insisted that the Articles would stipulate that they would be accountable under civil law, meaning that Loyalists who had deserted or betrayed their country could be tried, convicted, and executed. Cornwallis accepted the terms, only requesting that the British frigate Bonetta nearby be permitted to carry dispatches back to New York following the surrender and informing General Clinton of the defeat. Although not stated, the frigate actually would end up carrying a number of Loyalists and deserters back to New York to escape continental justice. The two sides haggled over the terms well into the night. Washington informed the negotiators that their time was up. Cornwallis would agree to the articles by the following morning so that the surrender could take place at 2 p.m. as planned. At noon the following day, October 19th, the French and American armies assembled in two lines which extended for more than a mile. Generals Washington and Rochambeau prepared to take possession of the army under General Cornwallis. The British second-in-command, General Charles O'Hara, led the British army out of their defenses. According to some accounts, the British band played a tune called The World Turned Upside Down. Some witnesses noted that the British averted their eyes to the French and tried to ignore the Americans. In response, General Lafayette ordered his musicians to play Yankee Doodle. When General O'Hara reached Washington and Rochambeau, he sent Cornwallis's apologies and told them that the general was not well enough to participate in the surrender ceremony. General O'Hara then tried to surrender his sword to Rochambeau. The French general refused it and pointed the general toward Washington. Because O'Hara was the British Army's second-in-command, Washington also refused to accept the sword, instead having General Benjamin Lincoln, his own second-in-command, accept the sword of surrender. This was also a direct reversal of what had happened a little over a year earlier when General Lincoln had had to surrender his own sword to British forces at Charleston. While the French soldiers were in dress uniforms at Yorktown, the Americans were in rags, many of them barefoot. All, however, were on their best behavior. By contrast, many of the British soldiers were clearly upset at their loss. A great many were thought to be drunk. When it came time to ground their arms, 
many of the British soldiers simply threw them on the ground, hoping to break them. The Hessians didn't seem really upset, and they didn't seem to take the loss personally and seemed perfectly at ease. Following the ceremony, the British and Hessians returned to their quarters in Yorktown to await being marched inland over the following days. The British had surrendered over 7,000 soldiers. The army had lost close to 500 killed and wounded in the siege. Hundreds more were dead or dying from disease. Smallpox, malaria, and other diseases had swept through the British camp. The British also turned over thousands of muskets, more than 100 cannons, several ships and boats, and a great deal of other equipment. The Americans reported a loss of 88 killed and 301 wounded, although many of those wounded would die from wounds or disease in the coming weeks. Among them, one of those who died of disease was Washington's stepson, Jack Custis. The 26-year-old volunteer died from camp fever about two weeks after the surrender. That night, Washington held a dinner for officers from the American, French, and British armies. Only one officer was not invited. Bannister Tarleton had generated too much bad blood to the American officers to put aside their feelings. There's also very good evidence that Tarleton, who had killed prisoners after battles in the past, was very much concerned for his own life and well-being and did his best to keep a low profile and out of sight of the victorious Americans. The dinner itself resulted in an odd dynamic. The French officers seemed to have much more in common with the British officers than they did with their own American allies. Those two groups seemed to get along much better than either did with the Americans. The Hessian officer, Johann Ewald, noted there was a great deal of enmity between the French and American officers. General Cornwallis failed to attend the dinner, but did feel well enough to visit with French General de Viondmenil that evening. Despite efforts to encourage Admiral de Grasse to engage elsewhere, especially Charleston, the Admiral demurred and returned to the West Indies. The British prisoners were marched inland. On October 19th, the same day as the surrender, General Clinton personally took command of a relief army aboard the British fleet that left New York. The fleet reached the Chesapeake on the 24th. They had not yet received word of the surrender, but soon realized what had happened and turned around and went back to New York. On November 4th, General Cornwallis, under the terms of his parole, boarded a ship for New York to meet with General Clinton and provide the details of the loss of his army. Following the victory, no one was sure what was going to happen next. The war would continue for another two years as both sides tried to figure it out. Just after the surrender, Washington wrote to General Nathaniel Greene saying, quote, My greatest fear is that Congress, viewing this stroke in too important a point of light, may think our work too nearly closed and will fall into a state of languor and relaxation to prevent this error, I shall employ every means in my power. On his return from Yorktown in November, Washington spent a week at Mount Vernon to mourn the death of his stepson with his wife Martha. He traveled to Philadelphia, where he actually spent about four months meeting with Congress and top officials and trying to decide next steps for the war. He then returned to his camp outside of New York to continue the standoff with General Clinton. By spring, he would settle into a home in Newburgh. The French army under Rochambeau remained in Virginia. 
the general was undecided whether he could offer more assistance to Washington in New York or march south to South Carolina to assist General Greene. In the end, his army spent the winter in Williamsburg before receiving notice the following summer that his army was being recalled. Rochambeau returned to France, although most of the army under his command was shipped to the West Indies to assist with the war effort there. Next week, we're going to deal with some more consequences of the surrender at Yorktown as the war in North Carolina comes to an end with the evacuation of Wilmington. This episode is supported by the food delivery service, Factor. It's spring now, and we all want to spend more time outdoors enjoying life, not the kitchen. Factor ensures you have fresh, never-frozen, chef-crafted, dietitian approved meals that you can prepare in just two minutes. Each week, you get a menu of 35 meal options, as well as 60 add-ons, including breakfasts, on-the-go lunches, snacks, and beverages. You can customize your orders to get as much or as little as you want each week and can pause or make changes to your orders at any time. Factor is less expensive than takeout and every meal is dietitian approved to be nutritious and delicious. It's the perfect solution if you're looking for fast, upscale options done easily. Now They even have a special deal for fans of the American Revolution podcast. Head to factormeals.com ARP50 and use that code ARP50 to get 50% off your first box, plus 20% off your next box. That's code ARP50 at factormeals.com slash ARP50 to get 50% off your first box, plus 20% off your next box while your subscription is active. Hey, thanks for joining the American Revolution Podcast After Show, part of the Airwave Media Network. Thanks to my Patreon supporters in the Alexander Hamilton Club, George Davis, Mike Hager, John Celentano, Michael Mulhern, and the Sons of the American Revolution. Be sure to check out the Sons of the American Revolution website at fastfunhistory.com. Thanks to Robert Morris Circle supporters Greg Pusak and 10 Crucial Days, which you can check out at 10crucialdays.org. And thanks to Aravan Vidali for a generous one-time gift via Venmo. As this is my 300th regular episode, It seems like a good time to remark on the milestone. I started this podcast back in 2017, and I actually began preparations for it a year earlier. I really had no idea that there would be this much interest in people listening to me just sit here and talk about the American Revolution over so many episodes. But you guys proved that there was an interest in this often overlooked era of American history. And it's really only because so many of you have been willing to support this show that I have been able to continue publishing new episodes and should be able to see it through to the end. Now that brings up another point. What is the end? Today's episode marks the end of major combat operations in the war. We've still got another two years before the final peace treaty, but there's a lot less military activity during that time So I'm probably going to get through those two years much faster than I've covered a year of war up until this time. As we get closer to the treaty, I'd love to hear from you, my listeners, to help me decide where we should end this podcast. Would it end with the Treaty of Paris? Or should we get into the building of the new nation through the Constitution? To me, that's what really makes the revolution revolutionary. 
but it will kind of be a different discussion than the war itself. So what do you think? Should the podcast continue to cover the years after the war ends, or should we just have a clean break and end it? I'd love to hear from you on the topic. Turning to this week's episode, the surrender of the British Army at Yorktown would have significance far beyond just the surrender of Cornwallis's army. In hindsight, we know that it marked the end of major British military operations in America and began the serious discussions toward a peace treaty that recognized American independence. Sorry if that's a spoiler alert for anyone. At the time, however, it was seen as a great victory for the Americans, but the war continued. With the departure of the French Navy, the British once again effectively controlled the waters off the North American coast. The Continental Army was still on life support. Financing of the Yorktown campaign came primarily through French financial assistance and a little from Spain. France, however, was going broke by this time as well. It couldn't afford to keep sending money. Congress was unable to extract money from the states, who continually pleaded poverty and who didn't see a need to raise taxes, given that the British Army was essentially inactive by this point. The officer who Washington sent to Philadelphia with news of the victory at Yorktown arrived without a penny in his pocket. Congress wanted to provide him with some money, but they found that Congress had none to give either. The individual delegates had to dig into their pockets and provide the officer with some of their own personal money so that he could eat and have a room to stay in. That was how desperate things were, and it was why Washington was concerned that the victory at Yorktown would only be an excuse for Congress to provide even fewer resources for the army. In Britain, the news of the surrender at Yorktown had a powerful political impact. The first news of the loss reached London on November 25th. According to Lord Germain, Prime Minister North paced wildly, repeatedly exclaiming, Oh God, it's over! The king wanted to continue the war and remain resolute, but his government had had enough. And we'll get into the details about the British reaction in a future episode, but this was the initial thinking and it played out that way. General Cornwallis was concerned that the defeat would ruin his reputation and military career. After briefly conferring with General Clinton in New York, Cornwallis sailed back to London to begin putting his spin on events. Cornwallis, quite frankly, tried to pin the blame on Clinton, arguing that Clinton had ordered him to take and hold the position at Yorktown and continually promised reinforcements that never arrived. Initially, General Clinton blamed the Navy. His reports to Lord Germain stressed that the naval intelligence informed him that Admiral de Grasse had brought a much smaller French fleet to America than was the case. After Clinton received Cornwallis's account, however, Clinton sent reports to London denying that he had compelled Cornwallis to remain in Yorktown. While he had recommended the site when Cornwallis initially moved to it, he had never instructed the general to remain there as a trap slowly built around his army. Because Cornwallis was in London and Clinton was still in New York, Cornwallis's version of events became what British officials and the British public heard most. After Clinton returned to London the following year, he published his own pamphlet denying Cornwallis's accusations that he had required Cornwallis to remain in Yorktown, or that his hopes of a relief force were solid assurances that caused Cornwallis to remain in his camp waiting for that relief. Clinton also added that Cornwallis had come to Virginia in the first place contrary to Clinton's orders. Clinton had instructed Cornwallis to remain in the Carolinas. 
and he only tried to deal with the situation after Cornwallis marched his army to Virginia anyway. Clinton also criticized Cornwallis for failing to attack the small Continental force under Lafayette before larger armies under Washington and Rochambeau arrived. Cornwallis had weeks in which he knew a larger enemy with reinforcements were on their way, and yet he did nothing. Cornwallis then responded by publishing his own rebuttal pamphlet that included much of the correspondence between the generals. As I said, in the end, Cornwallis's version became the one the public really adopted. Clinton was relieved of his command in North America, and although he would later be elected to Parliament and did receive a promotion to full general in 1793, his military career was really over after Yorktown. Clinton never again received a field command. By contrast, Cornwallis returned to London under parole and was free to consult with the government and the public. He was pretty quickly exchanged for Henry Lawrence, the former president of Continental Congress, who was being held in the Tower of London after his capture at sea in 1780. Cornwallis's career moved right along. He received an appointment as ambassador to Prussia in 1785. The following year, he was made a Knight of the Garter and appointed Governor General of India. He would spend nearly a decade in that role, consolidating British authority over India, before returning to become Lord Lieutenant of Ireland. His loss at Yorktown really did nothing to slow down his career. Even so, the surrender is seen as one of the most consequential defeats in British history, as well as one of the most important victories in American history. My book recommendation this week is The Day the Revolution Ended, October 19, 1781, by William Hallahan. It covers the Yorktown campaign and actually covers much of the Virginia campaign in total. It goes over much more than just October 19th that the title suggests, although it does devote an entire chapter to that important day when Cornwallis surrendered. The author, William Hallahan, is primarily known as a novelist. This is one of two nonfiction books he wrote about the American Revolution. The other is called The Day the Revolution Began, which covers Lexington and Concord. The Day the Revolution Ended was first published in 2009. It focuses, as I said, primarily on these events during the Virginia campaign as seen through the eyes of top military and political leaders. It's just over 250 pages, not counting notes and index, and is a pretty easy read. The author, Mr. Hallahan, passed away in 2018. His books are still widely available, so if interested, get a copy of The Day the Revolution Ended, October 19, 1781. My online recommendation is called The Campaign in Virginia, 1781, an exact reprint of six rare pamphlets on the Clinton-Cornwallis controversy. This is a book that was published in London in 1888, but as the title suggests, it's simply a reprint of primary sources regarding the controversy over Yorktown. As I said, Generals Clinton and Cornwallis both published a series of pamphlets and rebuttals to give their versions of what happened. All of these documents are included in this book. It also includes the original letters between Clinton and Cornwallis that they sent to each other during the campaign itself, as well as a great deal of correspondence and testimony of the records that Parliament reviewed in the years following Yorktown to determine what went wrong. In short, this is a great collection of primary source documents that were written by the actors themselves. Copies of this public domain book are available as free downloads on archive.org. 
And as always, I've included a direct link to it on my blog and website. My question this week asks, did George Washington ever see Lafayette again after the American Revolutionary War ended? Well, Lafayette left America at the very end of 1781, a month or two after the Battle of Yorktown. Lafayette then returned to America in 1784, the year after the Treaty of Paris finally ended the war. He spent a month with Washington at Mount Vernon. So the two did get together, see each other, and were able to reminisce about the war and lots of other good stuff. But this would be the last time that Lafayette and Washington saw each other in person. Their relationship would continue through correspondence until Washington's death in 1799. Lafayette's young son stayed at Mount Vernon for several years in the 1790s during the worst of the French Revolution. During that time, the Marquis was in an Austrian prison. In 1824, Lafayette would return to America again, this time for a national tour. Of course, by that time, Washington was long dead, as were most other leaders of the Revolutionary War. If you have a question you'd like me to answer, please reach out to me either via email or on Twitter, Facebook, Quora, or Reddit. Well, that's all for this week. I hope you will join me again next week for another American Revolution podcast. History isn't black and white, yet too often it's presented as such. Grey History, the French Revolution is a long-form history podcast dedicated to exploring the ambiguities and nuances of the past. From a revolution of hope and liberty to the infamous reign of terror, you can't understand the modern world without understanding the French Revolution. So search for the French Revolution today.